Welcome to another edition of the College Faith Podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. This is Stan Wallace, your host, and my guest today is Dr. Ken Elzinga, the Robert C. Taylor Professor of Economics at the University of Virginia. As a professor at UVA for over 50 years now, he has nurtured several generations of students. Christian and non-Christian students alike have benefited from his gentle Christ-like spirit, his winsome manner, and his extraordinary wisdom. He is the type of professor we all hope and pray our children will have, someone who cares deeply about both their minds and their hearts. Dr. Elzinga has been able to have such an influence on so many students due to his commitment to excellence in his calling as a professor, doing his work as unto the Lord. His honors are too many to mention, but I've listed a few of them in the show notes. He not only has many teaching awards and has taught more students than any other professor in the history of UVA, he's also spoken as an expert witness on economic issues before the Supreme Court, and he has written four popular mystery novels. Ken, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stan. It's good to be with you. Nice to see you again as well. It's great to see you again, too. You teach economics at a public university, so I'd like to start our conversation by asking how your faith in Christ influences how you teach in that context. Yeah, I'd like very much to believe that uh, being a follower of Jesus affects what I do. I do teach large classes in the fall at the University of Virginia. I have a class of a thousand students. So I'm talking about lecturing, uh, not in a classroom so much, but in a large lecture hall. And I want students in some way, uh, even though I'm teaching economics and not the Bible, I want them to know that I'm a follower of Jesus. One way to get at that uh, indirectly, but, but very importantly, is to, to, to really be mindful of the biblical admonition that whatsoever you do in word or in deed, do it as unto the Lord. So that's kind of a starting point or a window into what I'm about to do when I lecture. And that implies immediately that, that I want to be well-prepared, that, that I want this lecture on economics to be um, thoroughly prepared. I spend a lot of time working on my, on my lectures. But then to, uh, to signal to the students that I'm a follower of Jesus, one of the things I do on the first day of class is I tell the students that I'm going to teach the class from a biblical perspective. Hmm. Now, for many of them, they have no idea what that means. They don't know what's coming. But I explain to them that what that means is, is that it's a servant leader role and that the way I'm going to view the class is that I'm going to be their servant. And I use that word specifically. Now, the Christian kids in the class, they kind of know what's going on. But for a lot of students, this is totally new. And I explained to them that in the biblical view of leadership, the people who want to lead need to be the people who are willing to line up last and that, that I want to be their servant this semester and that they have every right to call me on that if that's not happening. Um, so that is a signal to students that something's different about the way I plan to approach the class. At the end of the semester, I usually will give a brief testimony. It's very brief, um, but explain to them that, that I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'll mention that uh, specifically. Um, so those would be some ways in which in a, in a lecture setting, I try to indicate that, uh, that, that the Christian faith means a lot to me. Occasionally, not often, I don't overdo it, but uh, instead of using an example from the business world or an example from the world of art or music, I might use a biblical illustration to teach some economic principle. Again, that's kind of fun for the Christian students, uh, or at least the students who know their Bible, because they, for, for maybe for one of the few times in their lives, they feel like they're an insider in the classroom instead of an outsider. Mm-hmm. 
So how about outside the classroom? How do you let students know you're a believer or minister to them in, in other contexts? Yeah. Outside the classroom, I'd say it comes up in a number of ways. One way of identifying as a believer is um, I'm regularly called upon and, and invited to, and I respond positively to the invitations to give talks to student Christian groups. Hmm. So uh, soon I'll be giving a talk to InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at the University of Virginia. So typically in a non-COVID-19 era, uh, InterVarsity will put signs up around the grounds that uh, Ken Elsing is going to be giving a talk. Please come if you want. And, and they'll do that with other speakers as well. Right. So that's one way. Actually, sometimes students will of mine will see that sign and they'll think, oh, well, I'll go to that meeting because I might be interested in what my econ professor has to say about his personal faith or about some topic in the Christian faith. So that's another way of sort of publicly identifying yourself as a follower of Jesus. The other avenue for me is frequently during office hours, students will come in and, and, and they'll maybe they're in trouble in my class academically, but what's really behind the the academic difficulty is their, their mom has cancer or their parents are getting a divorce or there's something really uh, tragic or serious happening in their life that's affecting their academic performance. And um, I frequently will pray with these students um, because I don't have a, an economic solution uh, to their academic problem. And I tell them that when I face problems that I can't just sort of solve mentally, as a follower of Jesus, I pray about those problems. And I'll ask the student, would they mind if I prayed for them about that? Now, I, I don't, when I say that, I don't mean sometime in the future. I mean, right there in my office. And uh, that's been a, a really important part of my um, connecting in the lives of students in a, in a spiritual way is um, it's, it's, it's a private conversation. They've, they've come to my office. They have a they have a problem. And with real integrity, I don't know how to solve that problem other than to take a, a, a methodology that's proposed by the scriptures of praying about it. It's been an interesting experience. I, I don't know, frequently don't know the students' faith, if they have any, mm -hmm. when I ask them if, if I could pray for them. But the, the response is always, yes, that'd be wonderful if you would. And I've had uh, Muslim students come back and ask me to pray for them again. I've had Jewish students, students I've learned were Jewish. After I pray for them, they come back and ask me if I would pray for them because they don't know any professors who would pray for them. I've even had a couple students come in to see me on what purportedly was an academic issue. And I've prayed for them when I learned, if I learn a student is a believer, I usually pray for them. And I've had students tell me that they really came in because they wanted to be prayed for. <laughs> They're kind of sheepish <laughs> about it. They kind of made up an excuse to come in. But sure. um, this is particularly true with a lot of the Asian students who, 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 who have a, a different view of, I don't know, age or something, and they, they like to be prayed for. So praying for students has been... Um, you know, when you get to be my age or things you regret, I think one of the things I regret is it took me a long time as a professor to realize that I had the freedom um, and, 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 uh, to, and, and it was a blessing to pray with students. And uh, I pray with people over the phone sometimes. I pray with people if I meet them on the grounds, uh, uh, we'll pray with them. Interesting. What a ministry. What a ministry. I just think back to my college years and uh, would love to have had a few professors do that uh, when I, I ran into some problems and challenges. So um, I think that's part of a bigger 
conversation or a bigger uh, issue that I know you think a lot about, and that is integrating faith and living. So as you've thought about how do I, how does a person bring their faith into all aspects of their lives? What are some words of wisdom you have for Christian students who are just now entering this new season at the university and thinking about those questions in relationship to their, their walk with Christ? Yeah. Yeah. That's a very fundamental question. And it's, um, uh, I, I want to address it kind of at two different levels, Stan, because both of these levels, I think, are fundamental. It isn't a, a ranking of here's number one and here's number two. It's, it's very important for Christian students when they arrive at their college or university to, to somehow recognize that they are not to be ashamed of the gospel. Uh, this, to me, is one of the, the, the sad things for many students when they arrive at a university and it isn't just the word timidity. I'm drawing a distinction to being timid. That's kind of a natural reaction for a lot of us, myself included, who tend to be shy by nature. But to, to, to really wrestle with the question, I'm in a new environment. I'm in a secular environment. I'm away from my home, maybe away from my home church, um, away from a young life club that I was involved in. Am I fundamentally ashamed that I'm a follower of Jesus? And to the extent you are, your spiritual life will probably wither. Um, this was a lesson I had to learn as a professor. Every Christian student needs to learn this. It's a very deep lesson to be learned. And the quicker you learn it, the better. And one of the best ways I learned it was going back to scripture in, in, uh, in Romans chapter one, where the apostle Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation. If you really believe that it is the power of God unto salvation, then you need not be ashamed of it. You may be criticized, you may be laughed at, you may be made fun of for your Christian faith. That may be, that may just go with the terrain. But if in the midst of being made fun of, persecuted, criticized, becoming the joke of, you just know, I'm not ashamed of that. Right. That's a real great first and important step to take. The second one that, that ties in with that um, and, and helps eliminate the shame factor is to get involved early on, like the first hour, if possible, or the first day or the first week with a Christian fellowship on the campus of your college or university. We are not meant to, to live as spiritual lone rangers. There may be a time for going off uh, into the wilderness for prayer and fasting, but the normal life for a follower of Jesus is to be in community. And so early on, when you're first arrived on campus, you want to be thinking, okay, I need to get my academic schedule straight. I need to get to um, the bookstore to line up materials and all of this sort of thing. I need to learn who my uh, resident advisor is if you're in a dormitory, but also what Christian fellowships are out there, what Bible studies, what can I do, what churches are welcoming to students and to get involved in that. To the extent you're involved in community, then that helps the shame factor a lot as well. Sure. Those, those are two really important steps that I try to get across to students when they arrive at the University of Virginia, if they're followers of Jesus. Hmm. Good thoughts, important, uh, important things. And those are some of the same themes that uh, my guest last month, Steve Garber, brought up in his research on helping students flourish. So it's, it's good to hear that reinforced from somebody with your experience and years and wisdom. 
you you have also uh, mentored many students over the years as a as a way to minister to them, and, and I'd like to know how you first got interested in that type of ministry and and what makes somebody a good mentor. What you've learned uh, in terms of being a good mentor and how students can identify professors who might be good mentors. Yeah. Okay, let me start in a little in a way it's a little awkward. Um, mentoring students was not something that I thought hard about initially, thinking, well, how do I do this? Uh, how do I get started? It started when students came to me. I still remember the first young man who came to me uh, as a student and said uh, he would like to be mentored. And uh, I've known this guy now for decades. So he's very much involved in young life in the Annapolis area. Uh, married, has kids off to college now, but he came to me and he said, I would like to be mentored by an older Christian. I was a professor. He was a student at the University of Virginia. And we started meeting uh, once a week early in the morning with a, a kind of a brief Bible study, catch up on what our life was like. And, and he was basically asked me questions about the Christian life all across the board from dating to careers, to time management, to, um, uh, graduate school and, and and so on, and I would try to reflect upon and share my wisdom w- with him. As I began to see the the importance of this, um, I started thinking differently about mentoring mm-hmm. and actually seek out students now to mentor. So most every year, the COVID nineteen is an exception, but most every year, I have five or six. Uh, students that I bring into what the students call a D group. The D stands for discipling, but it's a strange use of the word discipling because they're not disciples of mine. Some of the students in the group aren't even Christians. They're students that I've invited. And I basically said, how would you like to spend an academic year with me learning about various aspects of the Christian life? And we're going to get together every morning. I'll pay for some breakfast food for us. And we'll have a topic, and then I will learn a little bit about your life, and I will commit to praying for you. So a typical D group for me is five or six guys, and many of them don't know each other when we start out. Uh, Some of them wonder, what am I doing here? And usually about half of them are believers. Half of them are not believers. I've had Muslims, uh, Jewish kids in the group. and uh, we, we meet, and I basically have a topic. It's not a Bible study. I don't think they, some of them would come if it were a Bible study, frankly. Uh, we have a topic. It could be time management. It could be sex and dating. It could be future careers, it could be vocation, a whole bunch of things that we go through. And I have a sheet for them, and I talk about that topic while they're usually eating, eating their bagels. Right. And then uh, at the end, I pull a three-by-five card out of my shirt pocket. I say, how can I pray for you guys this week? And I write down the prayer requests. Mm-hmm. Now, for some of these people, they've never been prayed for before. This is a whole new experience for them. Um, and then I usually have a scripture passage that I, I share. And then at nine o'clock in the morning, we start at eight, we're gone. So they, they know they can count on this being one hour. And, uh, and, and this, again, is something I wish I had started doing years ago. The, the, the type of guys that I draw in are people that I typically meet in my office and we talk and I learned that uh, they're a Christian and they'd like to be mentored. Or I learned that they're not a Christian, but they might be interested in learning about the faith. The other people I'm drawn to are guys without dads. Mm-hmm. I'm really drawn to guys who have never had a dad in their life, either because their dad died or their dad left their mom. Uh, I, I really uh, ha- I just have a, a heart for 
uh, mentoring uh, guys like that because they haven't had the experience of an older man typically. Uh, I mean, they may have had an uncle or something like sure. that, but it's just one more older guy who, uh, who, uh, who cares for them. Uh, there's nothing, I'm not opposed to guys mentoring through Bible studies and there are people who do that. And that's really important. It's just the way I've done it, it tends to be a, a, a diverse group of guys who we meet together for a year. And, and this has led to all kinds of interesting things. I've officiated at the weddings of some of these guys later on uh, and, and so on. Some of them I lose touch with. Some of them will be my friends for the rest of my life. Sure. How often do you meet with them? We meet once a week. Uh, Tuesday morning at eight o'clock and at nine o'clock we're done. I may see some of them on one. Sometimes one of them will ask me, can I get together with you on a one-on-one basis? And I'll do that. Uh, we may take a, a hike in the Blue Ridge mountains sometime, but the real mentoring time is simply one hour every Tuesday. Um, and, uh, we talk about a, it is a topic today. We're going to talk about such and such. And I talk about how the Christian views that particular topic. So what would you say to a student who doesn't have a professor that's quite as intentional as you are, but would still like to be in some type of a mentoring relationship with him or her? How could that student approach the the professor and, and ask about that? Yeah. Yeah. You know, what the student might look for is, first of all, a professor who takes the Christian faith seriously. And, and do what the first student, what Jay Hewitt did with me, come and say, hey, would you be open to meeting with me to share your Christian life and your experiences with me once a week? And you may find that student may find a professor who's never done that before, but may think, well, yeah, here's somebody who would like to do that. I'll invest an hour a week with this young person. And, and so here's a case where a student can take the initiative and it may really affect profoundly the future life of that professor. The professor may realize, Oh, this is something I need to be more intentional about. I need to perhaps be looking for, because that's how it started with me was a student making a request. Now it doesn't, you know, if you're a student in a, in a college town, if you're involved in a local church, you may go to somebody in that church who's not a faculty member and say, Hey, would you mentor me? There's a number of, men and women in my church who are mentoring University of Virginia students who the people themselves are not faculty or employed by the university. So you're not limited to going just to a faculty member or somebody at the university. Okay. Well, good. So you've mentioned uh, a, a few things about finding fellowship, finding professors who are believers, finding others through say the church. Uh, what else can you say to students who are intentionally trying to find Christian fellowship? How do they find healthy fellowship when they show up that first week? Yeah, I can't speak to other campuses, at least all campuses, but I know many campuses uh, during the first week of school have something at UVA, it's called an activities fair, but something that's the equivalent of that where every imaginable student organization that you can imagine from people who are interested in spelunking to people who are interested in photography to people who are interested in salsa dance, whatever it is, will be out there with a table looking for people who with common interests or who might want to explore that. At my university, the Christian fellowships will be out there as well. So that's a great place to start. Um, but uh, you can also just go online for your university and see if there's a, a, a link 
to spiritual groups or Christian groups on grounds. You might find there's a chapter of InterVarsity or Crew or RUF or FCA, Young Life, any number of Christian organizations. Um, you might ask if you learn there's a really local good church to ask that church, how do you get involved with a Christian fellowship on campus? Chances are the pastor at that church or somebody on staff will will know about that. It's uh, I don't think it's really difficult. And then, you know, the other way to think about this is if you somehow have done all that and you can't find something, then put a note up in your dorm that you're going to start a Bible study. And if you can't find fellowship, you create it. I mean, how many students have had wonderful stories of their own Christian life uh, of seeing God at work in their life because they took a chance, so to speak, and put up a sign or invited some students in their dorm or, or their fraternity house or their sorority house to come into a Bible study. And they find, I'll, I'll just create this myself. I'll be a spiritual entrepreneur with a startup. That's helpful. And so can you say anything else from your perspective in terms of finding not just Christian fellowship, but Christian professors, whether it's a mentor or not, just anything else that might be a, 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 a tip students could have? Again, a local church may be a way of finding out information about faculty who are believers, but also if you can find a staff person who is with one of the parachurch organizations. So if you can find a staff person with CREW or InterVarsity, RUF, NAVS, um, any of these groups, um, you can ask them, uh, who are the Christian faculty on grounds? Who, who supports you financially? Who's on your support team? Who prays for you? And, and, and there's just ways of finding out if there's a, if there's a study center associated with or near there, the campus, go over to the study center and say, can you tell me about Christian faculty? What's a study center? Say more about that. Uh, study centers, there's probably 35 of them now in the United States. A lot of universities have, sometimes it's a, often a physical building. So at the university of Virginia, the Christian study center is just one block over from the grounds. And uh, it's just kind of a place, everything from, formal studies that go on there, Bible studies to access to Christian books, to uh, just hanging out, going in and making coffee and making uh, cookies with people. There's usually a kitchen there and, uh, and, and uh, there may be offices, classes, any number of things happen at these study centers, but they would tend to know who are the Christian faculty on campus because probably those Christian faculty were involved in helping to start the study center. And so when you say study center, you mean a Christian study center specifically? I mean, a Christian study center. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole consortium of them. You can, you can go to a homepage, Carl Johnson up at Cornell, who heads the Christian study center at Cornell is the head of the consortium. And uh, they have homepages. You can find out whether the school you're going to has a study center in the area. A, A lot of universities now have them. I think there's probably 35 of them in the United States. Great. And I will put a link to that page on the show notes. Great. Good. Well, I'm sure this comes up quite often in your mentoring relationships and probably other conversations, but what spiritual disciplines do you encourage Christian students to practice in order to thrive during the university years? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that I, I welcome that question because that's part of what goes on in my mentoring is to talk about uh, various aspects of Christian spiritual disciplines. So I'm going to just quickly pass over the, 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 the big three that probably should be on any list and near the top of prayer and Bible study 
and and worship somewhere where you are worshiping. I think a real danger with some students who go away to school is they, they may get involved in a Bible study on campus and they think, well, uh, mom and dad aren't here and my local church is back home, so I don't need to attend a worship service. That's a big mistake. Uh, a Bible study is really, uh, really important in terms of a Christian discipline and meeting students on your campus who might be followers of Jesus or interested in becoming followers of Jesus, but it's not a substitute for corporate worship with a local congregation. But apart from prayer and apart from corporate worship and Bible study, these are the two things that I try to impress upon students that I'm mentoring or students that I'm talking to. In fact, uh, this, this soon, I'm going to be giving uh, a talk to a local intervarsity chapter at the University of Virginia. And this will be one of the, one of the things I'm going to focus on. Um, and, and these two would be thinking hard about what does it mean to observe the Sabbath? Mm. What does it mean when there's a commandment that says six days you're supposed to work? And then this, there's this other day. Right. And it's different. It's different. When God created the world, there were these six days, and then there was this one day that was fundamentally different. What does that mean if you're a student at a university? Now, this is one of the, uh, the curious things to me, if, if not a, a sort of a sad thing for me. I know lots of students at UVA who are very committed Christians and, and pretty mature in their faith, and they take the Bible seriously. But when it comes to a Sabbath rest, it's like, oh, that somehow I'm going to ignore that one. That doesn't apply to me. Um, don't, don't steal or don't murder. Oh yeah. Those would be terrible sins. But so I am a, um, a borderline Pharisee about keeping the Sabbath because uh, I'm a workaholic and, and I, I really put in long hours of work and it's just really important for me. And it's such a blessing for me to have a day when I'm liberated yeah. from all of the pressures of my of my work, which is a very demanding trade that I'm in. So I look forward to Sundays. Um, I don't look upon the, that commandment about the seventh day as, oh, don't do this. For me, it's liberating. It's just been wonderful. Yeah. And so I try to get that across to students. That what would it mean? That's very hard for them. Even psychologically, a lot of students think, well, I got a class on Monday morning at nine o'clock. And in order to be ready for that class, I need to be studying Sunday night. So for many of my students, Sunday night is a major study night because classes start on Monday. Right. So what I do to some of them is I say, well, think about the Sabbath rest in, in, as, in a sort of Jewish way, sundown to sundown. So your Sabbath rest will start Saturday evening and then it ends Sunday at five or six o'clock. And then you start your studies. And I've known a number of students now who have started doing that. In fact, I got an email just the other day from a guy I discipled several years ago. He's running a startup business. He's under a lot of pressure to make this business work. And he visited me recently. He's down in Louisiana. He flew up and spent a week with me. And I said, Charlie, try taking a Sabbath rest. Get away from your business for a day. Now, this has just been two weeks, but he wrote me the other day. He said, I've had two Sundays now where I haven't worked. He said, it's been so, I think he used the word refreshing. So there is this, you know, God was wise when he created us and was loving and kind when he gave us this Sabbath rest. So I encourage students, in addition to the sort of standard big three of prayer and worship and Bible study, think about a Sabbath rest. The other thing I do is to encourage them to start thinking about tithing. 
uh, or, or some sort of systematic giving to a local church or their home church or some ministry that they're involved in. Now, their initial reaction might be, well, I don't have any income. And that may be, there may be a small work study allowance or something like that. But think about that. Not so much because the Lord needs that small amount of money, Mm -hmm. but because you may need this because someday you may be making a lot of money. And if you don't know how to give now, you might not know how to give later on. So that's a spiritual discipline that I think is really important to to think about. It's thinking ahead. A lot of my students have a, you know, the present value of their future income stream is in the millions of dollars. So they need to start thinking now about the stewardship over something that, that within their lifetime is going to add up to millions of dollars. But the only exception I've made to, to giving is if a student comes to me and says, you know, I became a Christian here at the University of Virginia. My parents don't approve. They give me an allowance. I think it probably would not be honoring for their parents to tie that because their parents wouldn't approve of that use of the funds. But that's a very limited uh, exception. We will return to our show in just a moment. But first, a word from our sponsor. Guests on the College Faith Podcast often discuss how important Christian professors are in the lives of their students during these impressionable years. Christian professors are examples to non-Christian and Christian students that a person can be educated and still follow Christ. And they can have a lifelong influence as mentors to Christian students during their college years. Please consider helping to equip Christian professors to make a difference on a campus near you and worldwide. To learn more, please visit www.global-scholars.org. And now, back to the show. Well, you know, this podcast is about flourishing both spiritually and academically during the university years. What are some disciplines that you would encourage students to develop during their university years in order to thrive academically? Yeah, well, that's a fairly simple one in a way, and it's fairly complex in, in another way. The simple one is to really work hard on their studies. Um, most of the students that I see at the University of Virginia uh, where I teach who are in trouble academically, it's not that they don't have the intellectual horsepower to do the work. They're just not doing the work. So you start out with the position that 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 there's a reason in the English language why we have the word study hard and we have another word for play and leisure. They're very different concepts and very different ways of using our, our energies and our time. So I really encourage students to, to, you know, this, they'll think, well, this is just a professor talking, but I'm not saying it just as a professor. I'm saying it as a Christian as well, that if God has blessed you with the opportunity to study at an American university, wow, what a, I mean, how many millions and millions of people around the world would love to have that opportunity. So don't screw it up. Don't abuse the opportunity by not taking it seriously, really study hard and study well. And, and, and part of that studying well oftentimes involves, um, again, an aspect of Christian community of, of studying with other people, whether formally with a study group or meeting friends in that classroom. So you are not taking that class as a lone ranger. You're taking that class with a couple friends that, uh, that back when, when, when we return and you can meet live in these classes, that these are people you walk out of the classroom with talking about what went on in class that day. Um, because you're interested in, in, in the ideas and the content of that class. 
So it, it sounds like a cliche, it sounds banal, but a lot of students, especially in their first couple years um, at, at my university, just don't uh, work hard enough at their studies. Now, it's possible to fall off the horse on the other side, and, and you, you just become focused totally on your studies to the neglect of Christian friends, Christian worship, Christian disciplines. Um, so, so you don't want to fall off the horse on, on either side. Other disciplines that you can bring to your studies are, you know, to pray about them, to make them a topic of your prayer life as well. Not just praying about the future of a career or a job, but, but your studies today. If a, I, I remember one time a really remarkable, mature Christian student that I knew, he, he would tell me how he'd be in, in, in a classroom, and if a student was having trouble in that class answering a question, he would, he would, this guy was a real prayer warrior. He would pray for the students in the class while the class was going on. Uh, he was a really godly uh, young, young man. Uh, there's, so these are things that you, you just want to bring your whole portfolio of activities, including your studies, to, to the Lord. Now, one aspect of doing that is if you bring your whole 24 hours to the Lord, then the stuff that's nibbling away at your life in an unhealthy way, where where basically you're just wasting your time, it's just really hard to bring that before the Lord if you're wasting time. Say, Lord, um, please bless my this time that I'm wasting. He's not going to do that, probably. You know, so much of success, if I can use that word in the academic life, is one of time management. Mm-hmm. There's there's usually time to do the things that 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 we're supposed to do. Um, the reason a lot of stuff doesn't get done is we let things intrude that we are really peripheral to uh, to our life in Christ. Right. Well, that's a life lesson, isn't it? Yeah. Not just at the university. Yeah. And it takes a long time. I mean, you spend a lifetime really trying to apply that lesson. It isn't like you, you say, okay, now I got it. This is a, a, one of the reasons I like the metaphor of a pilgrimage, that this is, you know, an econ lingo. It's it's the long run <laughs> that, that we're talking about here. It's not just a quick fix, right. but it's a long run perspective on, on what, what I want my life to be like. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure Christian students are very encouraged knowing you're a believer. How, how can they in turn be an encouragement to Christian professors like you? How do, how do you find students are, are ministering to you, you know, obviously asking that so that the listeners can know how they might seek to minister to their professors who they know are believers. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my, I have been ministered to many times by, by, by Christian students where they have uh, encouraged me uh, Sometimes I've gone through some hard times. I lost a wife to cancer. Mm. Uh, I had a number of Christian students who uh, really uh, cared for me during that time of being a new uh, widow, but even in less dramatic ways where you're not grieving over some major uh, uh, event in your life that, that has just hit you hard, but just in everyday life, uh, a student who stops in my office and just says hi and shares something that's happened in their life uh, uh, that's just normal, but positive. Um, that's just a delight for a professor. Very few students, I, I want to say this carefully, because I think it's just true generally, but it's true in the academic world as well. Very few students thank a professor for working hard or doing a good job or writing a recommendation letter 
Uh, it's just the university is not a place where, where the first thing you come to mind is what's the culture of a university? Oh, it's one of gratitude, overwhelming thankfulness and gratitude. That is not the university life at the University of Virginia. And I'm not picking on my school. I'm very blessed to be here. That's just the general culture of, of, of higher education. The word that more apt to come to mind is competitive and, and vanity and, and, the, and pursuit as opposed to gratitude. So just saying to a professor, I really appreciate the work you did on that lecture or thank you for, uh, for teaching me. These are ways, and, and if, the, if it's the Christians that are known to do that, believe me, the non-Christian professors will take note of that. I have seen that happen. I'm thinking of an English professor right now, um, a secular Jew, who has told me that one of the things that strikes him is the Christian kids in his class tend to be more upbeat and more grateful to him. One time I gave a talk at uh, one of the parachurch groups on, on grounds at university. It was, it was crew, actually. And he said, I'd like to come and watch you give that talk because I've been so taken by the Christian students that I've taught. I'd like to see what they're like when they're together. So, wow. um, you know, this was students not being aware of the impact they were making on a professor who was not a follower of Jesus, but was curious that the Christian students seemed to be different in his life. And how wonderful it would be if it were the Christian students who were regularly thanking their professors. And it can be verbal, it can be sent through an email. Uh, these things will be noticed, and they'll be noticed because they don't happen very often. Now, there's more systematic ways. Uh, there are Christian groups at, at, on campus at UVA and other schools that will put on a, a faculty appreciation dinner. And each Christian student or, or the students will, will invite one of their professors to come to this dinner, not necessarily a Christian professor. Indeed, it's like, not likely that it's a Christian professor. It's just a professor who's willing to come in and they have a nice dinner and, and they thank their faculty who are there. And usually somebody gives a Christian testimony. That's a more formal way of, of doing it. And that can be very, very effective. But just popping in uh, and not asking for something, but expressing thanks, gratitude, it's a big deal. Wow, that's such a good word. Appreciate that. Are there other ways that you can think of that students might minister, especially to non-Christian professors? Well. I think if they know that the professor has gone through a hard time, now that's maybe not likely, but you could learn, for example, that your professor has been ill uh, and missed class to, uh, to make some special recognition of that, that you're sorry about that. Is there anything you can do? And, and, and really mean that, maybe even offer some suggestions of what you might do. It may be that the professor probably is going to say, no, I've got food coming in and all of that sort of thing. But uh, to learn, uh, you know, you have to be pretty sensitive to know, but if you observe that a professor has gone through a hard time, to make a special effort to be available. Uh, I'll give you a non-student example. When I was a, a young pup on the University of Virginia faculty, um, I learned that a senior person in my department, that his son had uh, gotten into drugs in a pretty nasty way, a really hard way, a troubling way. And I went to this person, I didn't know him very well, but he, he was a senior person in my department. I just simply told him I was sorry that, that I'd heard this and I was really sorry. And if there was something I could do, uh, I didn't know what it would be. I'm not trained as a drug counselor. I'm not an MD. I have no special training in this, but is there anything I could do? I was much closer in age to this boy than most of the faculty because I was 
young person on the faculty at the time. I learned later that in, in my department, and this guy had been in my department for a number of years, um, as I understand it, I was the only faculty member who went to him and said, I'm sorry about your son. And, uh, and it affected him profoundly uh, that, uh, you know, where are all these other people that I hang out with, I'm a colleague with, I'm friendly with? Uh, I think part of it is people didn't know what to say. Uh, if they didn't have a solution, professors tend to be, we think we have solutions to things. And if we don't, we tend to be quiet about it. Um, I think it was awkward or embarrassing, but nonetheless, it was no big deal in terms of either spiritual wisdom on my part, spiritual maturity or time to go in and just say, I'm sorry to hear this, a word of lament with someone, even if you don't have a solution. Right. And, and I think it's okay to do that. Uh, as I mentioned, when my first wife died, there were students who lamented with me. Mm. Um, that's, a, again, a dramatic example, but there can be less dramatic examples where you can share affection with a professor. Sure. Economists aren't great at forecasting, but I will just forecast. That will be remembered. I am sure that's a very good word. Uh, you mentioned economics, and of course, that's your field. Are there are there some ideas or principles from economics more broadly that you see that have a bearing on growth in Christ and even ministry that students are involved in? Yeah. Uh, you know, econ is not, uh, there's a big difference between teaching econ and teaching Sunday school. That's for sure. <laughs> but uh, I, I would say that the most important principle, operative principle that economics brings to the table is the principle or the economic view of cost that, that, that there's a lot of things we teach about, but the thing we teach about, the thing that unifies economists of all different stripes is we tend to all agree on the definition of cost, that the cost of something you do is the highest valued alternative opportunity foregone. So that whatever I'm doing now, the cost you can't always monetize it, but it's the highest valued thing that I'm not doing. And, and that may sound simplistic, but it's a very profound principle. Sure. It means that the cost is not necessarily the accounting cost. The cost is not necessarily something just in dollars, but it is in some sense, the value of your time. So to my mind, if that's really true, if that's a good economic principle, the way to think about that in a biblical level or at a spiritual plane is that I need to be very careful about the use of my time because whatever I decide to do, if I decide to do option A, the cost of that is whatever option B was that I didn't do. And if B was really valuable to the kingdom, if B was really valuable to my own personal growth in Christ, if B was really valuable to being a good husband, if B was really valuable to being a good professor, then I need to be very careful about picking option A because it may not be worth the candle relative to the highest valued alternative opportunity foregone. Sure. So a very practical way to think about that is uh, I, I sometimes tease some of the students when I, when I mentor them, because I get to know them a bit and we can get under that sort of relationship. I wouldn't do this with a strange student or a student I didn't know well, but I might tease them about how many hours are you spending watching television? And if they say, well, I don't know, maybe two hours a day. And then I think, well, let's do some math on that. Two hours a day. If you do that every day of the week, that's 14 hours. So how many hours did you spend studying Calc 3? Uh, well, maybe that's three hours or four hours. 
outside of the classroom. And so then we start thinking about alternative opportunities foregone. If you're having trouble in Calc 3, which is kind of a rigorous course in math at UVA, it may be that the opportunity cost of watching television is just too high for you. Right. And you may not realize it because you're not paying dollars for it. So you may not, there's no physical counter. So you have to think, well, what is the alternative opportunity foregone of 14 hours of television? Well, for a lot of students, the opportunity foregone of 14 hours of television is probably the difference between a 3.0 and a 3.5 QM. Now, you may decide, hey, I value television so much and I care so little about grades that I'm willing to pay that cost. And that's a choice you have to make. But what econ brings to the table that I think is very useful is a mindset in which you think about your activities. You have a fork in the road and it's not a random choice which one you make that whatever, when you take the fork to the left, the opportunity foregone is whatever was down that road, that yellow wood, uh, uh, that was the other, the, the road not traveled. Right. And I asked that question related to spiritual growth and I appreciate you broadening it into all areas of life and including the studies. Yeah. Because studies, if you're a student, I believe studies are part of your spiritual life. I mean, God has called you in my sense. I'm very reformed in my theology that, that if you're at a university, you should start thinking that, you know, God positioned you here in this place. This is not a random event. Uh, you're here. And, and why is that? Right. What has God positioned or called you here to do? Yeah. So theologically, I really shouldn't make that distinction between a student's academic life and his or her spiritual life, because during this season at the university, he or she is called to be a student. And that is part of discipleship under Christ. That's right. Mm-hmm. Good. But Christian students called to secular institutions like yours there at the University of Virginia face some unique challenges. And in fact, recently you gave a talk and you claimed, quote, Christian students at the University of Virginia inhabit an institution where the major problem they face is not that their professors have set their minds against the Christian faith. It is that their professors teach as if the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not exist. In a way, this is worse than saying Christianity is false. It is to say, Christianity is simply irrelevant, end quote. So how can Christian students flourish and fulfill their calling at places like the University of Virginia? Yeah, um, I, I thought a lot about that because I've encountered parents, Christian parents, who when their child goes off to the University of Virginia, their view is that the child is going to go into some classroom and the professor is going to be openly hostile to the Christian faith and try and, <clears throat> if I can put it this way, talk the student out of the Christian faith, maybe not on a direct basis, but what will be said in the classroom will be so hostile to the Christian faith that the student will lose his or her faith. Now that can happen. I'm sure it does happen. But to my mind, as I've watched Christian students struggle with their faith over the years um, at my university and other schools that I'm aware of, it seems to me that a bigger problem is students studying to be an accountant, studying to go into kinesiology, whatever they're planning to do. And the whole deal is just operated as though God doesn't exist, right. that God has no bearing on this, that God, it isn't that God isn't there. It's that God is simply irrelevant in the whole equation. And that's, I think, indirectly a more um, dangerous anti-Christian posture than the feisty atheist who, who wants to debate because there is a debate that you can enter into. And really, really smart people have entered into that debate 
who are followers of Jesus, and they know all the arguments for atheism, and they know all the arguments to counter them. But very few students encounter that type of intellectual or spiritual battle. So how do you deal with a world in which what you've been told is the very heart and center of life itself, that you're made in the image of God, and now you're in an academic setting where all of that seems to be irrelevant? Right. You know, there's no quick answer to that, but I think the, the fundamental answer is you really need to understand the whole biblical narrative. You need to understand God's story, beginning in Genesis, where God creates the heavens and then the earth, <laughs> billions and billions of stars, and then there's one that's mentioned, and it's the earth. There's something special about that planet, and then God creates a lot of creatures, but there's one made in his image, and you need to understand that. And that's who you are, uh, a student. You're, you're the one creature, uh, creature who's made in God's image. And then you understand the biblical narrative of what God intended this creature to be, the type of relationship that God wanted to have with that person, and how it got broken through the fall. And then you look at the whole trajectory of God singling out a nation and the exodus and the continual sacrifices to try and redeem people from their sins, and the whole long narrative of the Old Testament. And then you come to the, the New Testament, and Jesus comes in, and, and this whole notion that saturated with blood sacrifices all becomes transformed with the sacrifice of one God-man, and that that's satisfactory for the sins of... And this whole biblical narrative, you need to know it. You need to love it. You need to be one conversant with it. So when the world seems to say God is irrelevant, when your academic setting seems to say this is an irrelevant narrative, because that's really what they're saying, is you can explain things through other systems, through other theories, through other philosophies, through other worldviews, that you have a worldview, and, and you know it, and you know that godly people have thought about this, godly people have been inspired to write about it, and it's trustworthy. But you need to know that narrative. If, if the Christian faith is a talk about tithing or a talk about keeping the Sabbath, uh, if it's a set of sort of rules, moralistic rules, that's not going to get you very far in the long run because the world offers a lot of moralistic rules as well, maybe very different from the Christian faith. But uh, if it's just all about conduct, uh, then your, your gospel is just not going to be probably very, to use the, a, a common word now, it's not going to be sustainable. But if you really know the biblical narrative and, you, and you, you can point to how the Old Testament is, you know, is really about Jesus, all the stuff about the sacrifices and the blood and all of that and the exodus and the redemption and the creation and the fall, it's all about coming into fruition with Jesus. You know that narrative. That will give you a counterweight to the false narrative that God is irrelevant. And I think you've said a lot already about how students can develop a robust biblical worldview, but might you add anything else that you found helpful? Well, hanging around with other Christians is helpful. Being in Bible studies, learning the scriptures, um, the whole part and parcel of living for Christ, not being ashamed of your faith, um, not being a pest because of it. 
uh, I really like, I think it's first Peter three 20, uh, always be ready to give a defense of the hope that is within you. So be ready to do that. That means you know something about it. You're, you're acquainted with the faith so you can talk about it. And then I always love the way that verse ended, do it with gentleness and reverence. Uh, so you don't make a pest of yourself. Uh, you're not a belligerent person about it. You, you, you're, you know how to defend your faith. You know how to share it, but you do it with gentleness and with reverence. I think the other thing is in the academic world, it's really important to get a handle on something that you find in 1 Timothy. Timothy says, the saying is true and worthy of complete acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world. Why? To save sinners. We sort of think, well, that's the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus came to save sinners. I'm one of those. Thank goodness that Jesus came to save me from my sins. But the front part of that verse is really interesting, too, to put it in an academic setting. The saying is true and worthy of complete acceptance. So think about that for a moment. I teach lots of things that I think are true. Uh, I think the law of demand is generally true, that at lower prices, higher quantities are purchased. So that's true. But it's not worthy of complete acceptance as you don't, you don't want to build your whole life around it. But that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, Timothy says, that's a saying that's not only true. So Christian students need to understand that this is this is a true proposition. This is not a once upon a time in a land far away kind of proposition. This is true. And then it's not just true. It's worthy of what kind of acceptance? Partial acceptance? no. Half-baked acceptance? No. Lukewarm acceptance? No. It's worthy of complete acceptance. That goes back to what I said earlier about not being ashamed of the gospel. Right. You're not ashamed of the gospel because this truth that we're told in 1 Timothy 1.15, I think it is, is worthy of complete acceptance. So complete means you can trust it in your studies. You can trust it in your friendships. You can trust it throughout your life. You can trust it in your job. Yeah. Uh, all the things that, that, that a fallen world will take you into, you can trust that. Absolutely. As you share how you're able to influence students with biblical truths such as this, my guess is that there'll be some students listening to this podcast who have a sense that they might want to follow the path you followed and become a Christian professor themselves. What would you say to them? Exhortations, encouragements, warnings, tips? Yeah. I'll start with the warning. Um, I think you you really need to be pretty confident that this is your calling because mm-hmm. it's a it's a long slog from being an undergraduate who's thinking I'd like to be a college or a university professor to making that happen. Now the academic world is not unique in that regard. It's a long slog to become a cardiologist. It's a long slog to do a lot of things that require a lot of credentials, a lot of accumulation of human capital, a lot of education. What's different, I think, partially different about becoming a professor is that if you get into a law school uh, and you work hard, there's a pretty good chance that you'll graduate and pass the bar. The same thing if you get into medical school and you pass, the odds are very high that you'll get your MD degree and you will go out and become a doctor. But to go into graduate school to decide to be a professor in arts and sciences or in a number of fields the odds are much lower that you will make it through. And if you make it through that, you'll get an academic position. Now it's more true in my field of economics than it would be in some of the humanities, like, like English, where jobs are very uh, sparse, even from people who have PhDs from top rate academic institutions. 
So you have to think, okay, I'm, I'm sufficiently called to this. I'm aware that this is a tough slog. It's going to take a long time. And, and, and from the world's perspective, there seems to be a lot of uncertainty involved as to where I'm going to end up. So you have to have a sense of calling. I think the other thing is don't delude yourself into thinking that this is an easy job. It's a wonderful job. I feel greatly blessed to be a professor, but it is hard, hard work that takes many, many hours if you're going to do it well. Um, I remember my nephew one time who I love dearly and he's smart as can be. Uh, he was an econ major at a Christian college and thought he might want to be a professor like his uncle Ken. And he came and lived with me for a while. And when he saw the hours that I worked, he said, you know, I think I'm going to do something different. And he's now a very successful executive um, with a company whose name everybody or most people on this podcast would know. Um, but he doesn't work the hours I do. There's this myth that a professor you know, teaches on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and they get their summers off. And, and so what do they do with all their spare time? Well, I don't find there is any spare time. For me, the only kind of spare time is what I elect to take on Sunday uh, of a Sabbath rest. Research is never done. It's a very demanding mistress. There's always more you can read. There's always more you can work on, always more drafts, always more projects that come along. Maybe I should look into this or explore that. Teaching is a very demanding mistress. I, I work really hard on my lectures, but I could always work more. And, and every year I try to revise them and improve upon them. So they're never done. You know, I hold office hours and sometimes the students will be there until seven in the evening waiting to see me. And, uh, and so you can spend a lot of time with students if you make yourself available to them. So be aware that if, if you're thinking, oh, you know, they don't work very hard. I remember I used to live on the grounds of the University of Virginia, what's called the lawn. And, uh, I, and my office was in a building right at one end of the lawn. And there's about 50 students, sort of the elite of the fourth year class who live on the lawn. And so you get to know them. They're, they're your neighbors because my home was right in the midst of all that, um, the part that Mr. Jefferson designed of the University of Virginia. And I used to come back from my office lots of times walking back to the place where I lived on the lawn. And it might be two in the morning and there would be students out there sometimes hanging around at, late at night. And they would see me walking back. And I remember one time a handful of them said, Mr. Elzinger, we just can't get over how the hours that you work, you seem to work more hours and work harder than we do. And I just was stunned when they said that. And I said to them, I have no, it has never entered my mind that I don't work harder than you do. I mean, that just never occurred to me. But I realized that my students tend to think this is kind of an easy gig. And, uh, you know, you show up for a lecture on Tuesdays right. and Thursdays and you hang around and read some books and that's kind of it. But that is not what it is. There are professors who don't try that hard and work that hard. But if you're going to do this as unto the Lord, then have your eyes wide open and know that this, you need to see it as a calling so that when it gets tough, you think, okay, this is what I'm called to do. Uh, so I'm going to keep doing it. As long as you think that's your call, then that call will sustain you. But for a lot of faculty members, if they think this is just a career uh, or a job, they either won't do it well or they'll bail because it's just too demanding. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's an important warning. and I appreciate you being so honest about that. Are there any encouragements or other words of wisdom after spending decades in this role? This is, this is like asking a question of an economist. We see costs and benefits wherever we look. Right. The benefits are very real. Um, one benefit for me is, is, is a great deal of liberty. 
uh, to research topics that I want to explore. And in some sense, I don't have a dean or a boss that says, Ken, you need to look into this topic. This is your assignment. I get to pick that. Now, I might pick poorly and make bad choices in terms of research productivity, but that's my choice. Um, I like the, even though I've talked about the long hours, I do like the freedom to move hours around. So I enjoy water skiing. So if two students said to me, would you teach me how to slalom ski on Wednesday afternoon? If I don't have a class that day, I don't have to tell my chairman or dean, hey, can I leave for three hours on Wednesday afternoon? Two students want to go water skiing. I just go do that. Uh, right. I, I, in one sense, I don't report to people like I would if I worked in a corporation. So I have freedom to move time around subject to meeting my classes and my office hours. And I value that. I also like working with young people. Now, some professors don't. After a few years, they get tired or bored of young people. That has never happened to me. Uh, uh, and uh, there are young people who trouble me at times and cause problems for me, but I still have a, an, a desire to work with young people. So that's a great blessing. Uh, you can get old. Uh, I've been at this for a long time, but the people you work with continue to be young. And if you enjoy that age group, well, then that doesn't change. And it seems that to your earlier point, that's one indication you've truly found God's calling in your life. That's right. So, Ken, as we draw this conversation to a close, is there anything else you'd want to make sure we touch on? Uh, Stan, this has been a very rich conversation. You've raised a lot of issues that sort of were memory trips for me in terms of how do we get started discipling students and that sort of thing. Um, I don't have anything to add at, at, at this point. Uh, I will say this. Um, you know, if you go to the University of Virginia and you go to the Economics Department homepage, you can find me. So if there's some student out there who's thinking about going to a college and, and, and is concerned about or interested in and how do I follow Jesus uh, when I get to that school or I'm at that school now and something I said might have provoked a question, send me an email and I'll try and respond to that. Uh, and I'll just add to that kind of a footnote. If you're listening to this and you're planning to come to the University of Virginia, wow, I look forward to seeing you in Econ 201 and hopefully you'll come by my office at some point. Wonderful. I think you might get some takers. Are there other places you would suggest that students go to find resources helpful in the things we've talked about? Um, there are a number of books on life at college. Uh, InterVarsity Press has good material on this. Uh, Crew has good material on this to prepare you. Uh, you know, I'm a professor, so it sounds like a cheap shot to recommend to read something. But if you go to uh, homepage of Crew or InterVarsity, you'll find good resources there uh, from their literature for preparing for school. Well, Ken, this has been so helpful. I have so enjoyed hearing from you and uh, just just helping to think more myself about some of the issues that you've thought about for many, many years and uh, have lived out. So thanks for your service to Kingdom and your uh, your model to those of us who are coming, coming along, uh, trying to emulate you as you emulate Christ. Well, thank you, Stan. It's been a, a real pleasure. I've, I've enjoyed our relationship over the years, and it's been fun being interviewed by you today. That brings us to the end of this edition of the College Faith Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation at the intersection of Christian conviction and higher education. Be sure to check out today's show notes at collegefaith.net slash podcasts, where you can find more information and links to the resources we discussed. If you found this podcast helpful, please help spread the word 
by liking my College Faith Facebook page at facebook.com slash collegefaith and pass this show on to others who may enjoy hearing our conversation. Please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars, to help equip Christian professors to be salt and light for Christ on their campuses. And if you haven't done so already, I would greatly appreciate your review of this show at Apple Podcast or Stitcher. Until next time, this is Stan Wallace encouraging you to love the Lord your God with both heart and mind during the university years and beyond.